Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Hey, if you're new to the 48 Days community, we welcome you. 48 days is just a period of time where I think it's reasonable to make any kind of major life change that you want to make. It's enough time to assess where you are, get the advice and opinion of other people, list your options, narrow down to three or four, choose the best one, and act. Well, that's a quick overview of the process, but again, if you're new to the 48 Days community, we welcome you in. A lot of ways to get involved. Many of you just listen to the podcast, and I welcome that. Some of you read my blogs at 48 Days. We've got a very vibrant community at 48days.net, where a whole lot of people are plugging in there. No cost to being involved there, but they plug in, become members, share ideas, get advice from others, and put legs on the ideas that maybe have been dormant for a long time. Now, this particular time together here, this is just a time each week when we take 48 minutes to examine the value of the work we're doing. If you've been listening to me at all, you know that I think work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck, but it's our best opportunity to live out our calling and to create the legacy we want to leave behind. Now, in a podcast, I usually answer questions from people who have submitted questions during the week, and we're going to do that today. We're going to get to questions that have to do with how do you structure fees when you're providing a personal service? How do you do due diligence when you're starting a business? What does that mean, and how do you do it? What do you do if you can't sell? Got a lady that wants to know, you know, how can you use any of the principles that I lay out if you really know that you can't sell? I'm eager to address that. Gentleman says he spent 10 years working on MLM, multi-level marketing, network marketing companies. Didn't work at all. Now he feels like he's in lost time. What do you do if you know that doesn't work? How do you move on from there? Those are just a few of the things we're going to be covering today. Now I spent four of the last seven days in speakers seminars. Last week, I had the pleasure of attending and presenting at Kent Julian's Speakers Boot Camp down in Atlanta. Kent does a marvelous job of putting together a speakers conference where people who want to use speaking as part of their way that they are creating a platform and a way that they're creating income for themselves. A lot of times it's combined with things, other things that people do like coaching or writing, certainly legitimate, logical kind of connections there. But how do you speak well, I mean, that's not just something, even if you have a great message to share, it's not something you just assume. You learn how to speak well. And uh, Kent does a great job of doing that. Then I, the last two days, I've been in the Professional Communicators Summit here in Nashville. Ken Davis organizes and puts that on. Ken is a well-known comedian, been around for a long time, and again, a great communicator. And this was a continuation. Really, they just happened to be back-to-back like this, but I went to both of them and went to this one just simply as a participant to learn from people who have spent their lives communicating and doing it well. Well, you know, a lot of times people retire too soon. You know, when, when we are communicating, we're, we're trying to do what Stephen Covey calls leave a legacy, 
If you remember in his books, he talks about we all want to, these are all L words, we all want to learn, to live, to love, and leave a legacy. You know, sometimes I think people just check out too soon, and it diminishes the legacy they thought they wanted to leave. I've been doing a lot of uh, speaking recently about creating a movie of your life. Now, this is a Donald Miller concept. Donald Miller talks about writing the movie script for your life in his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. But he kind of lays it out. You know, what would people say if they saw a movie of your life this far? Now, I did an interview just earlier this week on Moody Radio, and I think by the time you're hearing this, that should be up on our site somewhere easy to find. Perhaps one of the best interviews I've ever had done Uh, Melinda Schmidt, the host of that, uh, did a wonderful job of setting it up, asking me questions. Melinda, incidentally, is going to be one of the the speakers, presenters on the No More Mondays cruise. If you haven't checked that out yet, check out Coming With Us on a Cruise. Things are really heating up for that. Pierce Mars, our coordinator for that, says that all of a sudden we've gotten a lot of activity there. People wanting to get in before we lose our committed bookings. But it's going to be over Valentine's Day down in the Caribbean. We leave from Miami and then go down to San Juan, Puerto Rico, on down to St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands, a couple other stops. We're going to have some wonderful days together to learn how to blend work and play. That's our theme this year, how to blend your work and play. Melinda will be sharing, Alvin Schlatter, I'll be sharing. We're going to have some other competent people on board that we may just organize some spontaneous breakouts as we are cruising through the ocean. But anyway, I did this interview with Melinda Schmidt. And our theme for that was essentially, you know, if somebody saw a movie of your life so far, what would they say? You know, would they say, oh my gosh, that was awesome. Or would they scratch your head and say, geez, what was that all about? I didn't really get much out of that. Well, obviously you want the former to be the story of your life. You know, sometimes I know that uh, we may wonder you know, did I really make a difference? Did I really do anything significant? Did I just lead an ordinary life? Did I miss the big opportunities? Remember the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus? I mean, this movie just brings me to tears when I even think about it. But here's a school teacher who really wanted to be famous as a symphony conductor. He wanted to write music. And life just kind of happened, as it does often to many of us, where got married, had a, a special needs child, kind of got locked into teaching. All of a sudden, you know, the years just passed. All he had done is taught music in a local high school. And then new principal came in, new things changed, and they told him that they were no longer going to be able to even to fund a music program in the school. He was not going to have his job anymore. Remember that brilliant scene from the end? I'm going to play you a little clip here to remind you of this, because I think sometimes it's a good reminder, even if we're feeling like, you know, maybe I'm not really knocking it out of the park. I'm not going to be Oprah. You know, I'm not going to be Bill Gates. You know, does my life really matter? And sometimes I think it's healthy to look at the things that we're doing in our lives where we may underestimate the value of what we're pouring into other people's lives. Now, certainly that's part of it. 
I mean, our legacy is going to come as a result of relationships that we've created, whether that's through our family, our church, community, our work, our business, but it's through relationships. You don't leave a legacy when you live in isolation. You've got to be connected in some way. But there's this wonderful scene at the end of Mr. Holland's opus where the little redhead girl that he encouraged she said she couldn't play. And he said, what's a favorite scene of yours? What, you know, what is something that you enjoy? And she said, I, I like watching the sunset. He said, play the sunset. Don't worry about the notes on the paper. Play the sunset. She did. That little red-haired girl grew up to be governor of the state. And at the very end of the movie, she walks into the room. It's a surprise for Mr. Holland. She walks into the room, and here's what she has to say. Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives, I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus, and we are the music of your life. Well, a great ending. And they went on then, had been practicing in secret the symphony that he had written that had never been performed, and all his past students were there to perform, three generations of students to perform the opus that he had written. Wonderful movie, but a wonderful reminder that uh, sometimes we need to be reminded of those things in our own lives, lives that we have touched, ways that we are creating our legacy. Don't get confused that success means that you're going to have millions of dollars in the bank and a Ferrari in the driveway. Not necessarily, but as you define what success means for you, then you should be able to Find work that allows you to live out that success, where work is an integral part of creating the legacy that you want to leave, or it's not just the extraction of a paycheck. No, it's your best opportunity to be living out your calling, to be living out what you want to do to make the world a better place. We got some questions that address that as well, which I'm eager to get to. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Let me remind you real quick some of the things that we've got going on here. Again, this is October as I speak this particular podcast. We have no more live events scheduled at the sanctuary in 2010. little break for Joanne and me. We're doing some traveling, and, and I'm going to some other events where I'll be presenting, but nothing here at the sanctuary. However, we are having a lot of early registrations for our events next year. And those primary ones being coaching with excellence. So if you're interested in being a coach, you've got an area of expertise, you want to share that with others, build success in their lives, be paid for that. We show you how to do that. And again, coaching often goes with 
writing and speaking as other components of the same kind of territory. But Coaching with Excellence, we've got, I think we've got four of those scheduled for next year. That's a very popular event. Those fill up every time. So choose your dates. You can go to our website and look at the live events. Choose the date you'd like to attend. Get your registration in now to secure a spot. And then right to the bank. Right to the bank. We're doing that. I think we're doing that four times as well. I hadn't anticipated that, but I think on our schedule, we've got four times. That has turned out to be a very popular topic. Knowing 81% of the American population say they'd like to write a book. I guess we're just going to uh, help encourage a few of those, a few of you who do want to write a book. Writing's been very kind to me. It's what I enjoy perhaps more than anything else, and it's certainly one strong leg of our 48 Days business. So if that's an interest of yours, join us for a Right to the Bank event. Clarence says, Dan, love your programs, love your wisdom. I'm a solo medical professional and realize that when I don't work, I have no income. What suggestions would you give to a medical professional on developing alternative streams of income to overcome this? I appreciate your input. Great question, Clarence. As a medical professional, certainly you have an area of expertise. Now, I'm assuming you want to use that as the foundation for creating other revenue streams, and certainly rightfully so. So if you're a specialist and you deal with diabetes or you're an ENT doc or whatever it happens to be your area of expertise, there are things you can do with that. You can do, just like you hear me talk about here, you can do seminars, workshops, teleseminars. You can create instructional manuals, three-ring binders, how to have health in this particular area of your life. You could do a podcast. You could do a blog. I mean, just put legs on your area of knowledge so that it builds an audience for you, and then you can bring into that things that create ongoing revenue. You can be a resource of information on a particular topic. So if people are struggling with ADHD, uh, perhaps that's not wouldn't be what you would are doing in a, as a medical professional. But let's let's take um, well, let's just go with diabetes. I mentioned that I've got a couple family members that have diabetes, a brother and a sister, and it's something that we we see in in action all the time. But if you're dealing with that, I mean, you could have books and podcast by other people. I mean, you can be a resource of information where you can go to the publisher and be a distributor for books, buy those at deep discounted wholesale prices and resell those because you are then the source of information for people wanting health in that arena. I mean, you don't have to recreate everything yourself. Sometimes we get too narrow in thinking, well, unless I originate something, I don't have any opportunity for residual income as we're talking about here. Yes, you do. Just be a resource. You can have 20 different resources that you connect people through to uh, be those physical products or you can be an affiliate where you simply direct people to other websites that have information where if they spend money there, you get a commission on that. So build it in the same way that I talk about building multiple streams of income here, just using your medical background as your focus. This one comes to us from um, Missouri City. I recently started a tutoring business here in Texas. I've always wanted to tutor. My prices are $30 an hour. People say they can't do that price. How do I show how valuable I am? They want $15 an hour. I want to help kids, and the parents seem to take advantage uh, I also want to pay my bills. Well, you cannot structure your fees based on what your financial needs are. 
Let me give you an example of this. I had a young lady one time who burst into my office back when I wasn't working out of my barn, but had offices in town, burst in my office. It was somebody that I knew well, and she was just panicked because she had just gotten fired. And I said, well, golly, how'd that happen? You know, I thought you had a good relationship there. She, she said, I went in and I told my boss, you know, I moved into a new apartment. I bought a new car. You know, I, the, gee, you know, bought a new wardrobe, you know, and I couldn't live on what he was paying me. I needed a raise. And he said, I agree. You need to make more money. You're fired. Well, I actually laughed. I thought it was hilarious because it was a perfect example of how not to ask for a raise. Asking for a raise or more money has nothing, zero, zilch, nada to do with what your needs are. I mean, if you have a $2,000 a month mortgage and a $300 car payment and you have 40000 in student loan debt and you go to work at Taco Bell and you tell them, wow, based on what I need to make my budget work, you need to pay me $25 an hour. It's not going to happen. They don't pay that at Taco Bell. So you can't take an artificial overlay of what your needs are and say, well, I just need to charge enough to make what I need. So you have to look at, is it realistic to get $30 an hour for tutoring in your area? Are there other tutors who are in fact getting that? You need to be very familiar with what other tutors are charging for the subjects that you are dealing with. Now you may decide you want to put yourself at the top of the pack. And personally, I don't think $30 an hour is out of line for tutoring from what I know. But if you're getting resistance for that, then there must be the implication that they can get what you're offering cheaper from other people. So you may want to become an expert on a particular area, you know, on kids that are suffering from dyslexia, where they have trouble seeing because of the stark contrast where you may want to use a blue cellophane overlay on a book to make it easier to read like we did for one of my children or help them not be exposed to fluorescent lights but rather just real dim light or even have black paper on the wall to help create an environment where their brain processes the reading easier now when you start going in a particular area of expertise to that depth then you are an expert in that area and you're going to be able to go with fees that position you as an expert. And I would think that you could do that at $30 an hour. But that's what you've got to do. You've got to be realistic on based on what it is you're offering. How easy is it to replace you? And that's how all of us get paid. How easy is it to replace you? So if you're flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, you decide you, don't, you, you want $10 an hour instead of 8 Yeah, you're pretty easy to replace at $8 an hour. There's 20 people standing in line who will do that. Now, if you're a brain surgeon and you charge $20,000 for a particular operation and you decide you want to go to $25,000, the market may bear that because there's not a whole lot of people standing there to step into your shoes if you decide to leave. You've got to base it on that. Dan says, I'm starting a residential moving company, but I don't know what rate to charge, what pricing structure to use. Would you consider it dishonest to call other companies and get a quote on my personal residence? If so, what alternative methods would you use to establish a competitive pricing model? Absolutely. Call and get an estimate on your house. That That's not dishonest. I mean, you can even tell them what you're doing. I mean, if you feel like it is dishonest, just tell them you are looking at providing a service. I mean, that's not an unrealistic way at all to approach a new business. Go to the people who would be your competitors and flat ask them. You'll be surprised how open they are 
about telling you about the business. I've done that several times when I've started new businesses. Go to the people who are already doing it. Now, frankly, they tend to discourage you and that's not to be unexpected. They'll tell you how bad the environment is and customers aren't loyal and they don't pay on time. I mean, I've heard that about businesses repeatedly where I've decided to go ahead and do it and just make sure I avoid those pitfalls. Have great relationships with customers, don't have accounts receivables, get paid on the spot. I mean, whatever. But sure, due diligence means exactly what you're describing. Find out about the business Find out about others who are providing that service, others who did not survive, who have gone out of business in the last two years. I mean, talk to your local chamber of commerce. Tell them what you're going to do and ask them about other companies that have been in the same business and have done well or have not done well. And call and ask for five or, five or six quotes. I mean, quotes are not going to be difficult to find at all in that industry. And so from that, you can create it then a realistic structure and an overview of your business in advance. So you can see how is this going to work. So you map it out on paper and see what your finances are going to look like before you ever open the doors for business. Randy says, I'm the fundraiser coordinator for my son's little league, and I have a lot of knowledge and many ideas concerning fundraising. While recently researching some fundraising ideas, the thought occurred to me to create a service or website that would assist other groups with their fundraising efforts. Is there a way I can turn this service into a business? Absolutely. Now, here again, do your due diligence. You're going to find there's a whole lot of people doing what you're describing. There's a whole lot of consultants and experts out here to help organizations do fundraising well. So you've got to find what is your USP? What is your unique selling proposition? How is it that you're going to offer something that not everybody else does? But if you've learned some principles for fundraising, that's a very legitimate business consulting opportunity. There's a lot of ways to be compensated for that. I mean, you can just have a consulting fee to give them an overview, or you can take an active position in helping them raise the funds. You can take a portion of the funds as your compensation, that's not uncommon at all. And so if you're good, you can make a lot of money. I mean, these organizations that call you on the phone and say, hey, we're the uh, fraternal order of police down here. We're working with your local firemen or police organization. We're raising money. I mean, be aware those organizations take a big lion's share of the money raised. They're professional fundraisers. They come in, they blitz a town, they go through and they raise $100,000. Now, unfortunately, you know, sometimes they take 80000 and leave town and, you know, turn over a smaller amount to the organization they're representing. So it's an, also an area where there's a lot of negative image of what fundraisers do. Be aware of that. Know how to help yourself stand out with character and integrity. Well, Julie sent a very lengthy email. Julie, I thank you for your email and it's a very legitimate question that I want to help unpack because this is the way that it goes to Dan Miller last month I bought the book 48 days to the work you love based on the strong recommendation of Dave Ramsey whose financial books and CDs have been very helpful to me and my husband I'm in between jobs by choice and thought that by reading your book I could fine-tune what I would like to do next much of the material in the first seven chapters are things I have already done in my life and but I found the way you organize the material very helpful however this is the however when I got to about day 20 and the corresponding point in the book I stopped dead in my tracks the process you advise introductory letter resume letter 
follow-up call. In essence, that's a selling technique. Most people would benefit greatly by this method. However, I've found out throughout my career that my very worst skill set is selling. And in fact, I hate to sell. I'm not saying selling is bad. I just recognize that is exactly the skill that I most dislike to do myself. Well, she goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she says, I thought, well, since I'm at an impasse, I might as well read ahead to see what more you have to say. Indeed, there's very good advice in the following chapters. She's talking about 48 days to the work you love. But then you talk about being self-employed and you do that checklist. Again, you say that if a person does not have good selling skills, their business will tank. This I know for a fact because a business I had for several years did tank and for exactly that reason. I had coaches work with me and that is why we were able to to hone in on my poor selling skills and also my intense dislike for selling. I was very clear when I closed my business that I had to because there was no future there if I didn't like selling and didn't want to learn how to become a good salesperson. Now, she goes on, how is somebody ever going to succeed or get a job you know, if it in fact requires selling. Well, Julie, I've got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is it does require selling. There's no way around it. The good news is you can learn how to sell effectively. Don't just dig your head in the sand and say, I can't do this. And so I'm going to close myself off to areas of success that are all around me. I mean, when you think about it, Is there any area of success in our lives that does not require selling? Now, I don't want to overstate this, but I mean, think about this for a minute. Getting into college, you have to sell yourself. Getting married, goodness, I'm rather surprised you're married. You have to sell yourself. Getting a job, any job, you have to sell yourself. But now let's look at what selling is. I mean, Selling in its purest form is simply sharing enthusiasm. Now, hear me on that. Selling in its purest form is sharing enthusiasm. So, if you go see Mr. Holland's Opus and you tell 20 of your friends about it, you're selling. If you go to a great new restaurant in town, we've got one here, Chewy's. It's a Texas-style Mexican restaurant people stand outside and wait for two hours to get in you go there and you tell you know 40 people over the course of the next two weeks about this great restaurant you're selling now that's not high pressure you know blue suede shoes selling you know twist and try to get somebody to take something they don't want or need i mean that that's the image that comes to mind when you talk so negatively about selling Yeah, you know, the blue suede shoe car salesman down on the street. I walked in there wanting a Ford Escort, and I drove out in a Lincoln Continental because I felt so pressured to buy it by this jerk, you know, who was selling the cars. That that kind of selling is, those days are over. It really is. Let me give you a quick model, a formula for selling, effective selling. And you can bring this right into the process of getting a job of your dreams, being successful in a business that you you own. I'm going to give you a couple other tips on the back end as well. But selling is can be broken down like this. 40% of the process is developing rapport and trust. If people don't trust you, it doesn't matter if you've got $10 bills for eight bucks. They aren't going to buy from you. They have to trust you. So part of the question is, can you develop relationships with people where they trust you? 
Yes, I'm sure that you can. I'm sure that you've done that. That's 40% of the selling process. 30% is identifying needs. What is it that this person needs? See, the reason you feel, or I feel pressure if I go into a car lot and I wanted a Ford Escort is because the jerk there with the slick back hair and a fancy suit never took time to identify what my needs are. If I need a little economical gas-saving car for my daughter to drive to college, I don't need a Lincoln Continental or a BMW. But if he doesn't take the time to identify what my needs are, then he moves right into selling in a way that makes me feel pressured. 40% developing rapport and trust. 30% identifying the needs of the person you're talking to. And this relates to getting a job. If they don't need what you offer, there's no use in going any farther. You don't need to ask for a job there. If it's clear they don't need the skill set that you offer, otherwise, yeah, you would have to sell yourself in an artificial way to them when they make it clear that they don't need you. 20% of the product process is product knowledge or product presentation. So you need to be real familiar with the benefits of this insurance policy or this car or this restaurant or this service or this person whose credentials are on the resume that we're looking at. That being you, if you want a job, you have to be real clear. What is it that makes you unique? What is the unique value that you bring to the table? You ought to be able to present that with clarity. All right, now where are we here? Let's do the math. 40% developing rapport and trust. 30% identifying needs, 20% presenting yourself with confidence. So we are at 90%. 10% is closing. But you see in this process, no matter what the product is that we're talking about, be it a house, another piece of real estate, a car, getting a job, you walk right through this process, 40, 30, 20, 10, and 10 is the smallest component. It's simply a matter of filling out the paperwork. If you develop rapport and trust with an organization, you've identified a need there, you're clear about what your marketable skills are, you have just sold yourself into a great opportunity. All we're talking about now is the details of do you becoming an employee there? Or you starting a business? I mean, this applies in a whole lot of other ways. Now, what you have to do is, I mean, I mean, I know that people resist the 10% part, but if you frame it in that way, recognize you're not risk, resisting 100% of the selling process. Certainly not. Nobody's going to tell me that, gee, I don't want to create any relationships with anybody. You know, I don't want to have to identify the need or if there's a fit, I don't want to have to be clear on what it is that I do well and be confident about that. I mean, those are natural things that all of us want to do. So all we're talking about is how do you learn how to do the 10%? Well, that is something that can be learned easily. You need to connect with Pierce Mars on 48days.net. I mean, he talks about relationship-oriented selling and does it in a masterful way. But Julie, I'll have to tell you, your successes in life are going to be very, very limited if you resist any form of selling. If you want to give it another term, that would be fine with me. We can call it something else. We can make up a term. But in essence, it's selling and you can't be an effective Wife, mom, teacher, neighbor, church member, community participant, unless you are selling effectively. Catherine says, this is kind of related. 
Her subject in her email is shyness and marketing. Please describe. She says, I'm shy, especially when I have to be the one taking initiative to approach someone. Guess what my job involves? Marketing. I've decided on a possible business my husband and I want to pursue. Until we can get going on that, I have to function on my day job. I took the job knowing it involved counseling and teaching parenting skills. I didn't realize I'd have to recruit all my clients. I want to do a good job. Any suggestions? Well, don't try to sell something that you're not excited about. Remember I just said selling is sharing enthusiasm. You have to be enthused about what it is that you're presenting. You have to be marketing something that you would want your first cousin to have, that you want your next door neighbor to have. I mean, don't try to sell Chevrolets if you think they're a Detroit piece of garbage. Sell Mercedes or Jaguar. I mean, don't don't try to artificially be successful promoting something you don't really believe in yourself. So that comes back to this. Do you really believe in what you're offering? Do you believe that it has value at a fair exchange of money with a customer or client for what it is you're offering? If you do, then just hold your shoulders back and be proud of what it is you're doing and do it with confidence. Again, I mean, you, you can't be... If you're the receptionist at an organization or you're in an administrative position, you're selling your services every day that you're there. Don't ever think that once you get a job, then you're, the, the need for selling is over. It's not. You have to sell the value of what you're doing every single day or you're going to be going out the door. Don't sit on your hands with that thinking that gee, I don't have to sell myself. Getting a job was arduous. It made me nauseous having to do what I had to do to get a job. And now it's over. No, you're interviewing for your job every day you show up, whether you think you are or not. Well, let me move on. Carol says, Dan, I'm 61 years old. And for the last 10 years, I've been unsuccessful at network marketing. I finally realize it's not the business model for me but not before creating great financial loss for my family and me. I feel ashamed and like a loser. I have to create income, but I'm afraid. Well, you've had a learning experience, Carol. I mean, we have to frame it as such. Some people show up here in the Nashville area and they sit in classrooms at places like Vanderbilt and Belmont and Trebekah and Lipscomb. Uh, They pay for that experience because they're learning. It sounds like you have had a learning experience, and with that has come some tuition as well, not unlike what we all experience in life. Having recognized that, and it's wise if you recognize network marketing, multi-level marketing, however it's described these days, doesn't fit you, then be realistic about that. And you need to be. I mean, one of my pet peeves with network marketing companies is that they try to convince anybody who breathes that they can do the business. That's ludicrous. I mean, if you need somebody to be a server at the front end of your restaurant, you're looking for a person that has particular personality skills. Somebody who's very gregarious and outgoing and social and connects easily and smiles nicely. I mean, those are the, you aren't going to hire somebody who is really a great logical thinker and good at doing bookkeeping and accounting and very analytical. That's a different skill set. That's not what you want in that position. In network marketing, be realistic about the kind of person that's going to have a chance at doing this well. 
we can describe very quickly a person who could. So Carol, if you understand that you are not a good fit for that business model, don't try to convince yourself. It doesn't matter how good the company is, how good the products are. The business model doesn't fit you. And yes, I agree. You need to move on. Now that doesn't need to be devastating because the goal with network marketing is to build up residual income. I mean, it comes from, I mean, residual income, meaning you get a little bit of momentum starting and then all of a sudden you're making money 168 hours a week. I mean, that's what people want. That's what the attraction is. You talk to three of your friends, they talk to three of their friends, they talk to three of their friends, and all of a sudden you've got 60 million people in your downline, and if they're all doing a dollar a month, you got $60 million coming in your business. Well, it never works that way, but that's the way it's laid out. That's the goal. So the question then becomes, is that the only way to create residual income? Well, heavens no. There are thousands of ways to create residual income. I mean, if you have a little position on eBay and you're selling books, that works for you 168 hours a week. You can be doing another job or be sitting on the beach somewhere and that still is working for you. That's a form of residual income. If you write a book, I mean, certainly those of us who are authors, you know, have been blessed by residual income if the book does well because you write it once and get paid thousands and thousands and thousands of times over as I've been privileged to do with books that I've written. That's another form of residual income. I mean, the principle comes from really J. Paul Getty. I think the old oil magnet talked about, you know, he'd rather get a little bit of the efforts of a hundred people than a hundred percent of his own. I mean, that's another way to look at it. So if you start a landscaping service and you hire a hundred people, I mean, you're going to be getting income based on the efforts of all those people, not just on what you could do yourself personally. That's the way people grow businesses. So it's another opportunity, but you, you leverage your ability. But now when we talk about if you're not an outgoing person, you're not going to do well in network marketing, you recognize that. So some of these other things I've described, you would not do well either. That's okay. I mean, look at the way that I sell books. I mean, we sell a lot of products. I just described that I've four out of the last seven days I've been sitting in workshops. So if I just had linear income, my income would have been at absolute zero during those four days. Do you think that's true? Well, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with my income at all because I have systems in place that create income and the systems I have in place don't require me to pick up the phone and call somebody. They don't require nose-to-nose, face-to-face, belly-to-belly interaction with people. There's systems that are put into place and you can do that for virtually any topic, any kind of product, you can imagine, you can do something along those lines. So if you create a little audio CD that helps people get through a tough time, or you do a little DVD, or you put together a little material that you can sell as an ebook, and those are all examples of where you can create residual income and start on the same process with the same goals that you had for network marketing, but adjust the business model to something that does, in fact, fit you. Well, that's a great question again, Carol. I love your question, but uh, don't be discouraged. At 61 years old, if you've got this all figured out, you can adjust the business model to one that does fit you, knock it out of the park, and have the most productive two decades of your life. Dalibor. Dalibor, an interesting name from Ohio, says, Dan, I'm listening to Muhammad Yunus on social business concepts. I find his ideas striking a deep chord within me. 
Where should I look to find local guidance or examples on the subject? Where do I start? Where do I find connections with social life entrepreneurs? Thanks for what you do. It's a gift. Well, thank you, Dalabar. Muhammad Yunus, for those who may not be familiar with that name, started Grameen Bank. Now, he saw the poorest of the poor people in Bangladesh, people in abject poverty, women who would work on the sides of the street weaving baskets, but the vendors for the supplies that they needed were taking advantage of them and essentially making slaves out of them. He thought, well, that's nuts. I mean, if they had $2, they could buy the materials, make the basket on their own time frame, sell it for $6, and they'd immediately be in a cash positive cash flow position where then they can then again buy materials, make it again, they'd be in business for themselves rather than just being slave labor. So he started micro lending where ladies would get a loan for $2 or $5 or whatever it happened to be that they needed. Now, the way he put it together, I mean, it's a marvelous, marvelous concept. And his, his book, his best known book on that is one that I certainly value a lot, Banker to the Poor. And Muhammad Yunus is the author, Banker to the Poor, and it tells about what he did. That concept has grown and grown and grown. The way that you get a loan is because there is some social accountability. You can't just go in for a loan for $30 by yourself. You become part of a little group of five people. So the $30 loan to you the accountability is to the entire group. The other four people have accountability. If you don't pay it back, they do. Now, what do you think about that concept? What do you think about shared responsibility? That's why, in as much as the American banking system is a disaster, and we hear about millions and millions and billions of dollars, you know, not being paid back and filtering through the banker's hands and all kinds of horror stories, with this system of micro lending to poor people who have no collateral, no credit history at all, the repayment rate is 98%. I mean, it's just astounding how well that model has worked. So yes, hey, I'm, I'm delighted you asked the question. I can talk about that all day long. Now you ask about where can you connect with other people who think like that? It's interesting that Grameen Bank, I mean, we think about it, well, yeah, gee, that's a great concept for India or China or Bangladesh or Taiwan or where where people are living in abject poverty, Ethiopia. You know what? They are opening those banks in the United States of America as well. Do you think there are areas in America where people could use a small loan to get on their feet, where they would benefit from being connected in a socially responsible way with four other people in their community and then repay the loan and go back on from there. Sure. I mean, a person's not going to be able to go into a, an American bank and get a $30 loan. They're going to laugh at you unless you have a big need, a big risk and a whole lot of assets. They're going to talk to you. So it's a, it's a very strict screening system where people who may need it most can't get it. And that's pretty much, the way the American banking system has been described, I think it was Mark Twain who said to bankers, a guy who will you know, loan you an umbrella on a sunny day. You know, not, not there when you need it or in the way that you need it. And if you don't need it, then he's got something to hold his hand, hold his hand out. 
Well, let's go on. Well, let me give you some other examples. Um, we're, we're having an event here tonight. Now, tonight is meaningless if you're listening to a podcast, but Chris Gelbu, who wrote the book, The Art of Nonconformity, is going to be here for just an open event. We're going to have a blast. We're going to have live music and a bonfire, and Chris is going to talk about his book. Read the book, The Art of Nonconformity. It talks about what you're talking about. This kind of social entrepreneurs, things that Shane Claiborne has written. He would be another one. Read David Bornstein's book, How to Change the World. I mean, those are all great resources and will put you fully in that community. There'll be links in there to blogs and websites. There's a whole lot of activity going on. I was having this discussion this morning with my son, Jared, who's spent most of the last five years in Africa working with social entrepreneurs, how to help people get on their own two feet so they can become givers and not just always on the receiving end. Well, let me grab a couple more here. Let, let me just, uh, let me let me take a couple more. David says, Dan, I attended your Right to the Bank conference in June. It was awesome. I came back home fired up, full of ideas. I got my book self-published through Amazon's Create Space. Now, let me just add a couple tidbits here. I mean, that's one that we recommend. It is for authors who are, I have not gotten a big publishing deal with one of the, the big publishing houses, but they want to get their material out there. Amazon says, hey, come on down. We've got the biggest distribution system for books in the entire world. We'll put you right in here. They have a program called Create Space, and you can send them a document ready to go, and it's up this afternoon. Or you can say, I need a little help on the cover design. I need a little help getting the ISBN number for the back of the book, and they can help you with that with packages as well. So anyway, David used Create Space. He says it was extremely easy and very affordable. I'm now working on marketing the book for Christmas. My book is called, I Believe, A Christmas Story. Set up a website for it, and it's just that, I Believe believe in Christmas, ibelieveinchristmas.com. Kind of a great domain name. I have a website linked, the website linked to a Facebook fan page for the book along with a buy now button and a link for the book on Amazon. My question is this, there's just over 60 days till Christmas. Of the suggestions you gave us for marketing, creating a funnel for our work, what would be most effective in spreading the word in a short amount of time? I'm grateful for your influence on my life. Your work and example has expired, inspired me to greater heights. Well, thank you, David. Here, let me give you some quick tips. We're just about out of time here, but you got a book. I did go look at your website, I Believe in Christmas. I'm a little confused by the graphic at the top. I don't think it's clear what that is, and it's kind of overpowering, and yet not really being clear what it is. I wonder if you couldn't change that to make it a little more engaging and somehow connect with the idea of Christmas. Also, let people see more of your book. Now, there's one little graphic there. It looks like you've got amazing illustrations in your book. I'd love to see a few of those, but let people see four or five pages of your book. Give them more of a sense of what it's all about. Give them what the benefit is going to be for them to read it. I mean, no matter what the book is, even if it's fiction, there has to be a what's in it for me. People aren't interested in just being voyeurs into something else that already happened. How's that going to benefit me? What's the principle that's going to come through that's going to grab me? So give people some content. Start a blog about Christmas and the content of your book. You can do that immediately and you'll attract people because of the how Google sensitive Christmas is going to be and it'll get you readers there. You'll start to create an audience and a buzz about your book. 
Go to other blogs and sites that relate to Christmas. Comment on three or four other blogs daily. Yeah, right in this period of time leading up to Christmas, get really just blitz on anything talking about Christmas. Offer to do a joint venture with any other site that focuses on Christmas items. And I'd encourage you to build a selection of Christmas-related products. It's really tough to have just one product, especially one little book, and have any kind of significant income from that. Become a resource where people are interested in Christmas ideas, Christmas books, Christmas themes, Christmas gifts, where they can come and you supply a host of things because of affiliate relationships and distributor relationships you have, and then you can really start to build some viable, realistic income in what you're doing. Well, we are right at 48 minutes. I'm going to have to stop there. Hey, I love this time together with you, our listeners. I love the fact that you keep shooting questions in. You can do that on our podcast page at 48days.com or just shoot a question to askdan at 48days.com. You can leave a phone message as well, but you don't hear many of those on here because those tend to be lengthy and hard to really capture. I usually just give the essence of the question and read it. I hope that's okay with you. But uh, appreciate you being part of what we're doing. You can check out our live events coming up. Uh, we've got the cruise coming up in February and then the Coaching with Excellence and Right to the Bank events scheduled for all next year already. If you'd be interested in having me speak, I mean, I've been to a couple of these speakers conferences that got me fired up about speaking more. I speak a couple times a month, typically. But I'd be interested in doing that a little bit more. So if your church or community or business would like to have me come in and talk about, you know, hold fast to dreams, talk about the changing work models and how we find the new opportunities, we can build it around the theme and no more dreaded Mondays, I'd be delighted to do that. You can find that on our homepage, 48days.com as well. Just go to the Ask Dan to Speak link that's there. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope that you're enjoying this time of the year. It's a great time to see the seasonal changes, recognizing that the trees that are losing their leaves and becoming bare, they're not dying. They're just going through a healthy change. They're going to come back in spring. Sometimes the changes in our own lives, uh, we need to reframe it to recognize that. This is not the end. It's just another chapter in the story of your life, another scene in the movie of your life. So be anticipating spring, even if you feel like you're in a fall season in your life. Enjoy the time of finding meaningful, purposeful, and profitable work. Have a great week.